we have met with God. Lord, be with us now as we study Your Word. Speak to us clearly that we would delight in You. Amen. You're right. A little more. You're past Open your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 6 through 15. If you uh, are interested, I did put a sermon outline in the back that you can grab if you want to follow along, if you, if you need some help. There's a lot of scriptures we're going to rattle off this morning, so it might be helpful to have those in front of you. I've printed them out for you um, and kind of gave you a, a road map. But let's read together first. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 6 through 15. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not accord with the tradition that you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us. <clears throat> because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have the right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not as, not as, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If Anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. May God add his blessing to the reading and the hearing of his word. Now, as we approach this passage, Paul has come to the end of his discussions in First and Second Thessalonians, and he's come to the problem that has been persistent throughout the Thessalonian church. They are uh, constantly dealing with this issue. The issue is simple and pretty, pretty obvious. There are lazy people in the church. There are lazy people. Now that sounds funny. That you would get frustrated with lazy Christianity. But it is frustrating. Lazy Christianity is a frustrating thing to the body of Christ and to the people of Christ. So he's got this problem that has showed up and he's already addressed the problem a couple times. In 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 11, he urges them to, to aspire to live a quiet life and to, get this, mind your own affairs or mind your own business. And to work with your hands as we instructed you. So the problem has already been addressed in the first letter. And he says, listen, mind your business. Stop talking about other people's business and mind your business. 
You ought to, you ought to look to into inward first, right? That's his first, the, the first thing we can remember about 1 Thessalonians. Mind your own business and then work with your hands. Like, do something. Work. Work with your hands. You were designed to work. For six days, people were supposed to work. On the seventh, they're supposed to rest. That indicates that God's design was that you were going to work the majority of the time. You were going to work the majority of the time. And while we have eternal rest in Jesus Christ now, we also are to work to expand the kingdom of God, to work and to labor and literally to work, to get a job, to work on this earth so that we would know the joy of the rest that comes one-seventh of the time. So we work. In, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9, it says, For you remember, brothers, our labor and our toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. So not only does he urge them to live a peaceful and quiet life working with their hands, he also says, look, we modeled this for you. We did this for you. When we came, we worked. We labored. We wanted to bring, we wanted to bring the gospel free of burden from you, from you. We wanted to bring the gospel to you free of burden. And then 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14, he said, We urge you, brothers, so how do we deal with the idol? Remember, we talked about this, or the lazy, or the disorderly. How do we deal with them? We talked about this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14, where it says, And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idol, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. So there's patience with all three of those categories, and you've got admonish or correct the idol. You've got uh, crutch or lift up the weak, and you've got help the infirm or help the the people who can't uh, help the weak. So you've got encourage the faint-hearted or crutch the faint-hearted. That's what that indicates that you would be a crutch to them, or that you would lift up and, and carry those who cannot. Which is, which is the last one there, to help the weak and do so with patience. So he's dealt with this already uh, in 1 Thessalonians, and he's even dealt with it some as we've gone through 2 Thessalonians. But this is a persistent issue that has showed up in Thessalonica, so he is bringing it up again. And he's, he's talking about it a second time here. This dealt, I want you to note, he says, the command here that he gives Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not accord with the tradition that you received from us. This concept of walking is a general pattern of life. This doesn't mean somebody who's who's taking a day off. That's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about somebody who has uh, a week of vacation and is, is going on vacation for a week. He's not talking about somebody who's going through a series of depression or going through a season of anxiety and is, is really needing to be crutched by the community. He's not talking about the people who need encouragement. He's not talking about the people who are weak and can't. He's not talking about them. He's talking about people who walk in idleness or walk or live a lifestyle of laziness. People who live a lifestyle that is undisciplined and lazy. This idleness will kill a community. And that's why he's addressing it. This kind of laziness will kill a community. It will will wear out those who work and it will frustrate 
those who genuinely need help. There are people in the community of faith who genuinely need help. They genuinely need to be lifted up. There are people who genuinely cannot do things. And they need the body. And so those that are lazy frustrate them because they take the resources of the body for themselves when they don't need them. So they frustrate the needy. And they wear out those who are willing to work because we assume, because we love each other, as a body of Christ, we love each other, so we assume that you need it when you're lazy. We assume you need the resources. We don't assume that you're lazy. No one assumes that anybody is lazy. Well, some people do. But those people should be scolded a little bit and told that they're not being lazy. Give them the benefit of the doubt. They're they're your brothers and sisters in Christ. Go talk to them. But no one assumes that everybody's being lazy or they shouldn't assume everybody's being lazy. We assume you need the help. So we pour into you, giving you all the help and all the resources that we can. And then this person over here that is genuinely needy of it, who hasn't said anything, gets frustrated. And the people who have the resources to help get worn out helping people. Get worn out and exhausting people. This kind of idleness that Paul is addressing is an insidious wickedness. I want you to understand that this is an insidious wickedness and Paul sees it for what it is. He's dealt with the lawless man that would be coming. He's dealt with the rebellion outside the church. Now he's looking inside the church and he's going, there's a problem. And it's an insidious one that will wear you out. And it will break your church community. It will break your church community because people who have good intentions will seek to give and take care of lazy people at the cost of the needy, at the cost of the broken. When we need the lazy people to work and be a part of the community, we need the lazy people to... I'm just going to wave my hand on both sides of the room just so that you don't think, don't think I'm going, these people. We need the lazy people to work so that we aren't exhausted. That's what Paul's getting at. So that things are not a burden. So this passage is divided pretty easily into uh, one instruction, three reasons for that instruction, and then a rehash of that instruction. I don't know if you saw that as we read through, but you got verse 6 and verse 12 kind of copying each other. You've got verse 6 and verse 12 kind of copying each other. And then you've got three reasons in the middle. So that's how we're going to look at this today. Uh, so let's just dive right in into this command. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness. Pause right there. And let's ask the question, what is idleness? What's he talking about? The term is used three times only in the New Testament. It's only used three times, two times in this form and one time as a verb. It's used in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6 here, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 7, and in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14. So these are the places where it's used. And what it means is literally disorderly or undisciplined. Idleness means disordered or undisciplined. It means scattered and and disorderly, fractured and crazy. Um, Paul indicates that there are evidences for what constitutes 
a disorderly life, even in this passage. If we just look at verses 7 through 10 here, where it says, For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were here with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to you all. It was not because we do not have the right, but, because, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we gave you the command. If, no one, if one is not willing to work, let him not eat. So Paul says uh, one of the indications of a disorderly life is a loafer, one who will not work. One who will not contribute or work in the body, as opposed to Paul and Silas and Timothy. Another example, I think, of idleness or another evidence of laziness in the Christian faith is is found in chapter 2, verse 2. If you drop back, it says, Do not be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. This is another indication of a disorderly life. Someone who is quick to run after tada. Tada! You know, as opposed to truth. Remember the phrase, truth trumps tada all the time. All the time. If it's true, it overcomes new and exciting. So truth trumps tada. But a disorderly life leads to being blown about by every wind of doctrine. Being blown about by every exciting piece of news. You hear some news and you go, oh, what, what happened? What, what's going on? Oh, did you hear? Did you see this? Did you, have, you let, have you heard this? Do you know this? Oh my goodness, they're all going to die. <laughs> like that news, that ta-da, that super exciting news that we get. And, and in our culture, this is an easy one to see because media is so overwhelming for us. Paul, they had to wait for a letter to be delivered. They had to wait for it. So what you had was town gossips. That was your social media, right? Sister Martha come into the workshop and talking to Sister Claire, Clara. You know, I'm trying to pick names nobody has. Clara, you know, I'm going, blah, 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 blah. Did you hear, blah, 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 blah. And then the other one, oh, I didn't hear that. Did you hear? Oh, I didn't know. Pray for him, right? Like that's, you put the pray for him at the end so that you don't feel bad about the gossip, right? So this is, this is what the thing uh, indicates. Paul is indicating that there's loafers, and that's one indication of a disorderly life. Second, there are people who spread misinformation, false information, who gravitate towards tada rather than truth. Third, there are those who want handouts. Like in verse 12, when Paul says, tell them to eat their own bread. I think the ESV translates it, make their own living. Eat their own bread. Right? Do, do work and eat your own food. Stop mooching. People who look for handouts. That's another indication of a disorderly life. And then the fourth indication I think that you can see even in this text is in verse 11. They are busy bodies, not busy at work. They're gossipers and meddlers. They're always concerned about other people. They're always concerned about so-and-so. Oh, I wish so-and-so were here to hear that message. 
You're here. You're the one that's supposed to hear the message. That's the worst attitude to have. I wish so-and-so were here to hear this. No, no, I'm here. I'm here now, Lord. What do you have to say to me? And that's, that's how we approach Scripture. That's how we approach life. We share abundantly with everybody. And just a side note, if you've ever thought, I wish so-and-so were here to hear that. It's not a bad thing to think, but I just want you to hear this from my own personal experience. Every time I've thought that, I've gone and shared whatever that message was with somebody. Like I've gone intentionally to go tell them about that message with the person that I thought I wish they were there. And inevitably, somebody else who was not there or who, who maybe even was there but didn't hear it will overhear me sharing with this person and it means nothing to the person I thought it was supposed to mean something to and it means everything to the person I thought was fine. So I just want you to hear this in love as your pastor. If you ever think, like I have, I have done this. If you ever think, I wish so-and-so were here. So-and-so really needs to hear this. Know that you're probably wrong and that the Lord intends it to be for you And for somebody you never expected it to be for. So yes, share the message out with everybody. Share it with every person. Yet at the same time, recognize that it's the Lord's Spirit who moves in the heart, not your desires of who should hear it. So we have this, this, these four things that I think you can see pretty obviously. uh, Indicators of what makes a disorderly life those who are loafers, those who spread tada over, over truth, those who want handouts, and those who are busybodies and gossips and meddlers. Now, it's necessary here to pause uh, and just consider something about the Christian life. The Christian life is about order and work. The Christian life is orderly. It is, it is structured and it has Work that you are to do. In, in Ephesians chapter 2, it even says, You were made for works which He prepared in advance beforehand that you might do them. That you would work in the Christian life. The Christian life is not a lazy religion, it's not disorderly, it has order to it and structure. So let's think about this just a little bit. The joyful Christian life is a life of labor. And I've got a bunch of scriptures just to rattle through for you to hear. Philippians chapter 1 verse 22. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. Paul is talking about whether or not he's going to die and go to heaven or labor on earth. And he says, if I'm on the earth, I'm here to work. I'm here to work and I'm here to work positively for the kingdom. I'm not here to sleep. I'm not just waiting for heaven, but I'm here for work. Psalm 128 verse 2, even in the Old Testament, you shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed and it shall be well with you. When you eat the fruit of the labor of your hands, you are blessed. You work, you get stuff. That's how this works. It's really simple. You work hard, you get you get blessed. You get blessed, which is the word happiness in the Old Testament. You get happiness. You work hard. There's an air of happiness about that. Colossians chapter 1, verse 10. 
so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, get this bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. You are designed to work even in the Christian life. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10, for we are His workmanship, this is what I was just talking about, for we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is a pattern of life that you should have, that you work and you work well. Galatians chapter 6, verse 10. So then, as we have the opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially those who are in the household of faith. You were made to work, and you were made to work in order to serve others. In order to serve others, especially those in the community of faith. Especially one another. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28 says, Let the thief no longer steal. That's who you used to be. You used to be a loafer, a mooch, a thief. That's who you used to be. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with those in need. So we are no longer thieves stealing resources from others. We are now Christians who work to develop resources, to give them out, to give them to others, to be a benefit to the Christian community. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. The Christian life is one of working even theologically. You are supposed to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, to struggle with it, to, to know it. To work hard to know the Lord. Colossians chapter 3 verse 23. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. You have one master. That's Jesus Christ. Your employer, not equivalent. He might be your earthly master. He might be your earthly employer. But you have Jesus above him. And Jesus, according to the book of Romans, has put that person in charge of you. So hear, hear the difficulty of that. Even non-Christians are put in places of authority by God's hand. He is sovereign. Therefore, you are speaking about and to and working with someone who is God's instrument above you. Whatever you do, Work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. 2 Timothy verses 2 6 says, It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. So Paul in 2 Timothy urges Timothy to remember that joyful labor brings fruit. You are to be striving for joyful labor. So here's the question for us. What are we doing individually? What are we doing individually to contribute to the needs of the saints? To contribute to the body of the saints? What are we doing? What labors are you doing to contribute to the body? Then he says this in that instruction. Keep away from any brother who is walking in disorderliness or idleness note here when he says keep away from them he still refers to them as brothers this is not the same instance 
as 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 13. If you're familiar with that one, that's the one where Paul says, don't even eat with the guy. Like, kick the guy out. He shouldn't even be a part of the community. He is so wicked and he is so evil, he shouldn't even be around. That, that is not the same as what's going on here. Paul is saying here, this is a brother who is still a Christian, but he needs to be admonished. He needs to be told to work. And the way to do that, one of the ways to do that is to make separation, to keep away. The word means to withdraw or shrink back. It's also a way of saying, treat them properly. Treat them properly. In the Septuagint, this word is used in the Old Testament. Septuagint is the Old Testament translated into Greek. So it's the Old Greek translation of the Old Testament. It's probably what Jesus read uh, when he was young. So the, uh, anyway, in the Septuagint, this word is used in, in Malachi. And it, it means to have reverential awe, like to, to stand back in awe of God properly as is fitting. As is fitting. So when you find somebody who's walking in idleness or who is consistently living a disordered life, give them a little space and let them know you're doing it. Give them a little space. You admonish them and encourage them and you give them a little bit of space. You treat them properly. You don't ask them to work. When you need something done, they don't get asked for it. When you need to get something done at church, you don't ask them to do it. Because you know they're consistently walking in idleness. You keep away from them. You go, oh, they're not going to do it. It's logical. And you might bring up the need and see if they answer. But you're going to give them space. And you're going to encourage and you're going to admonish them. This is not the same as 1 Corinthians 5. Please Understand, 1 Corinthians 5 is when the person is living in blatantly obvious sin that is destructive to everyone around them. You look at that person and you go, listen, you are not welcome. You are not welcome. But this one is a brother who is struggling. And hear Paul's heart. It is not one of anger or irritation. It is one of there is so much more to be had. There is so much more to be had. We sometimes have to give space to somebody for the sake of discipline. For the sake of getting them to live a disciplined and full life. So, there's the instruction. The instruction is to keep away from one who is walking in idleness. So, verse 7. Why? Why? We're going to go through these three reasons. The first reason is the example that Paul and Silas and Timothy had set they had set one that was uh, an example of working. An example of working. We were called to live an orderly life, not disorderly. Paul says here in verses 7 through 10 that you know yourself, that you ought to imitate us because we were not disordered when we were with you. We were not, uh, we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. What a great just tangible example. Isn't that perfect? Like we did not come eat all your food. Isn't that perfect? We were sparing. We worked. We contributed to the body. We brought things together. This is, 
This is really tangible to us, and I hope that everybody brought something this morning just because this could be awkwardly convicting to you. And I mean awkward because I know you contribute. Like, don't. (laughs) But Paul said it. The Bible says it. So if you're convicted this morning, are you with God? So we see here that they did not eat the food without bringing stuff. So tangible for us, isn't it? We eat here every week. Just let that fall on you. If you're feeling guilty, I'm sorry. That's, that's what this is. He says, we didn't eat what we weren't. We brought food. We didn't cons- consume and not contribute. And we even told you, if anyone's not willing to work, don't let him eat. This is contrary to everything the world tells you about worship. This is contrary to everything the world tells you about worship. And I have to apologize to you on behalf of the American church because I'm part of it. This is contrary to what we have told you in the American church. We have told you that you can come and consume and do nothing and come as you are and we'll have big bright lights for you and screens and an emotional sermon and we'll give you an altar call that you can come and feel better after the service and go home. That's really why we do that, by the way. It's, so, it's for two reasons. The reason you have those things is because you're, you're calling for a tangible thing you can read as a leader. I can count how many people walk forward, right? I can count how many people walk forward. So that's one. And then two is because that action of walking forward and then going back to your seat or walking forward and talking to the pastor and making some public statement about rededication, that action makes you feel better so you go home and then next week and live like the devil all week, but next week come back because you felt better. It's garbage faith. And the American church has sold it to you. And you've bought it. We've bought it. We are a part of the America. We are part of the United States. We cannot simply absolve ourselves of all the flaws that we have in our communities. This is tragic, what we see in the world. And call it church. When we, when we do this, when we tell you, come and consume. Come and consume and do nothing. And we sell you a cheap grace that's led generations to hell. Thinking that they're happy and good and well off. And they're good people because they have emotional highs once a week. That is wicked. And I'm sorry. We are working to change it. You are working to change it. We are working to change it. And the Lord is moving. The culture tells you come and consume, but Christ tells you come and serve. Come and labor. Come and work. So let's continue with our paused thought. Why should you contribute to the body? Why should you contribute to the faithful? Why should you contribute to the church? And first and most obvious is because it's commanded. It's commanded to contribute. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17 through 19, it says, As for the rich in this present age, 
charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, and to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasures for themselves as a good fortune for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Paul says those who are rich are to be generous, to give, to share. That's the first. It's a command. It's not, it's not a question. It's not an urging. It's, a, it's an exhortation based on a previously established truth, a command based on a previously established truth that you are a believer in Christ. Therefore, your riches are to be used for eternal purposes. So you're supposed to be using your riches for eternal purposes. And if you're in this room thinking you're not rich, I just want to remind you, you live in America. You're in the top 10% of the world. You have two pairs of shoes. That's the top 10% of the world. You drive a car. You're in the top 10% of the world. You own the car. Top 10% of the world. You have two cars. You're even up higher. You live in a house that you own. You are rich. We live in the United States of America. You are in the richest, most, you're in the richest country in the world. This is also one of the greatest places to live in the whole world. This is it. Reagan wasn't wrong when he said if we lose freedom here, it's gone. We are blessed beyond measure with wealth so that we can give it out. So that we can take care of others. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1-4 through 4 says, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so also are you to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside, store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send uh, those whom you accredit by letter to carry the gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. So Paul says to gather your uh, gifts at the beginning of the week. Gather it when you, when you gather together for worship. You should bring your gifts. It's also echoed in the Old Testament. When you come to worship, you're to bring an offering before the Lord. We don't talk about giving a lot here. But it seems fitting, as I just read that text, to say you need to give regularly. You need to give regularly to your church and to other things. 10% is a good place to start giving. Just throwing that out there. 10% of your income is a good place to start giving. If you are not giving, you are hindering your own growth. Paul says to bring your offering when you come to worship. And he is specifically talking in 1 Corinthians 16 about a financial offering. Now, you need to give. I don't think I need to elaborate on that anymore. If you want me to, I'll be happy to talk to you at lunch. I'll probably avoid the topic. I hate talking about finances. My wife handles most of the finances at our house. And there's a reason for that. So, give. 
1 Corinthians 9, verse 13 through 15 is a longer passage, and this is what it says. This is my defense to those who would examine me. So Paul's talking about his own uh, people who are charging him with uh, kind of being a philanderer who's seeking money. So he says, this is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain for, from working for a living, who serve as a soldier at his who serves as a soldier at his own expense, who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit, or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does the law not say the same thing? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. It is, is it for God that, is it for the oxen that God's concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher should thresh in hope of sharing of the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, it is, is it too much if we reap some material things from you, if others share this rightful claim on you, do we not even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in these sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living from the gospel. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure such provision, for I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground of boasting. Paul argues that you should give, give in order to provide for those who serve you. Should give in order to provide for those who serve you in First Timothy chapter one verse five through seventeen. I mean, chapter First Timothy chapter five verse seventeen through eighteen. It says, "Let the elders who rule be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the Scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and laborer deserves its rich is, and the laborer deserves his wages. So, why contribute first? Because it's commanded." Over and over. That's why you should contribute. Because it's commanded. Second, you, you give because blessings are promised to those who give. Blessings are promised to those who give. Luke chapter 6, verse 38 says, Give and it will be given to you. Got good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For the measure with which you, which with you use it will be measured back to you. That's a promise for this life. If you give, God will take care of your needs. He goes on to talk about the sparrow. says the sparrow doesn't worry about anything because God provides for him. So we know that if we give open-handedly to the Lord, he will provide for your needs. I'd like to give you testimony after testimony after testimony. When I felt like we could not give and we gave extra and then the Lord provided. You watch me as an example. I get a short paycheck, and the first thing I do with my wife is ask where we can give more. Because I know the principles God has laid out that I will be happier if I'm open-handed. Same with you. 
Same with you. Give. It will be given back to you. Your every need will be provided. I can give you testimony after testimony of when God has done that. Matthew chapter 10, verse 42. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his rewards. He's talking about rewards in heaven. If you give to somebody who is in need, there's both rewards in heaven and rewards on earth. And if you give to somebody who is in need, even a cup of cold water to a kid, you don't have to worry that you're going to lose that because you gave it to a kid. He's going to provide for you. So the second reason that we contribute to the body is because there's blessing in the giving. There's blessing in the giving. The third reason that we contribute to the body is in that passage. First in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 16. Let's just go there. Real quick, 2 Corinthians 9, verse 16. 9, verse 6, sorry. 2 Corinthians 9, verse 6. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make grace abound to you so that, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound with every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing. Increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of his service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of his service, they will glorify God because of your submission flowing from your confession of the gospel of Christ and and the generosity of your contribution for them and all others while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible Gift. So the third reason there is 2 Corinthians 9, 6 through 15. That's a lot of reasons he gave you. Grace abounding, uh, the forgiveness of Christ, blessings coming upon you, the provision of your every need and all sufficiency of God the Creator. You had all of those things listed in there. That's your third reason to contribute. And then the fourth reason to contribute is found in our text today. Verse 8, that we might not be a burden to anyone. That we might not be a burden to anyone. When you don't give, you burden those who are giving extremely. And you frustrate those who are genuinely needy. That we might not be a burden to anyone. So why contribute? Because we're commanded to. Because there's blessing promised to those who do. Because 2 Corinthians 9 2 Corinthians 9, verse 6 through 15. And because you don't want to be a burden to anyone. So who should contribute? This is a fun one. There's three types of people who should contribute. First, those who are not disordered. Those who are not idle. They should contribute. Christianity is not those who are disorderly. We are those who are ordered. 
So we should contribute. Second, the rich. We read that in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17 through 18. The rich should contribute. The rich should contribute. Third, the poor should contribute. You see that in Luke chapter 21 with the widow's might. She gave out of her extreme poverty. And you can also see it in the Macedonian believers in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 7, where it says the Macedonians give out of their extreme poverty, out of their nothing they give. So who should give? Pretty much everybody, right? Unless you're lazy, in which case you're not supposed to be lazy, right? So the idle, uh, those who are not idle should give, those who are rich should give, those who are poor should give. One of the greatest ways to grow in Christ is to contribute to the community. One of the greatest ways to grow, grow in Christ is to contribute to the community. Now, just on a very practical level, I jotted down six things, or seven actually, that, that come off the top of my head of how you can contribute at Sovereign Grace Fellowship. Just in case you're going, well, John, I understand this and I want to. How do I do this? Okay, first, uh, bring food to lunch. Easy, right? It's an easy, tangible thing to do. Bring food to lunch. Second, help clean up. Like this is, we don't own this building. We have to clean it every week. So, you know, stick around, help clean up, pick things up. It's helpful. Third, look for ways to encourage one another. This one is more important to me than any of the others. I just want you to understand this one is more important to me than any of the others. Look for spiritual, personal needs in the other people and encourage one another. I want Sovereign Grace Fellowship to be a place where people who are part of the body go, I love those people. I love Sovereign Grace Fellowship. Because that's how I feel about you. Because you are on my mind always. Not sometimes, but always. And I want you to be on each other's minds. One of the beautiful things that we have seen here that we can all attest to is that needs get met without me having to do it. Because the people here love each other. Because they love each other. And they get into each other's lives. So that's three. Four, uh, use your talents. Use your talents for the kingdom. Contribute by using your talents. Five, see a need, meet it. If you see a need, meet it. Don't ask me to do it. Meet the need yourself. If you see a need, go figure out how to fix it and do it. Meet the needs. Six, give financially. We talked about that, right? Like, if you've got it, give it. Give financially to the church, to the body. When somebody has a need in the body and you can meet it, meet it. Seven, write Hayden Hughes. Write our brother who is in prison. Write him, write him. Get on the email list, write him. There's a, they're no longer accepting physical mail, but now you can email him. So get on, pay the $11 for the stamps. You get 25 stamps, 11 bucks. Pay for it and then write him back and forth. It's worth it. Write Hayden. Write each other. Encourage one another. Those are just some random ways. There are millions of other ways that you can contribute to the body. But I wanted to be able to make sure that I said something about contribution because I knew that after this sermon, somebody's going to go, well, how? Now I can get what I said. Seven of them. So you can do those. Even if you have the right to not get the gift, don't. So the, the reason, the first reason, back to our first, we're going back to our first reason, by the way, here. The first reason, even if you have the right to receive and not 
give and not contribute. Like if you if you are working in, in my position teaching, or if you're if you're laboring in the gospel, if you're a pastor, or if, even if you have the right, don't take advantage of it. Don't exercise it. If you are able to work, work. This is the heart of Jesus. This is the heart of Jesus. He had the right to have his own feet washed, yet he knelt down to the ground to wash ours. To wash yours. He was king. He was the one who had the right to have the servants wash his feet. Yet he says, if I'm your master and I do this for you, you ought to do it to one another. Right? So reason number one was Paul's example. And I want that kind of heart. Paul's example. Reason number two is really, really incredibly simple. Look at verse 10. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Christianity is not a place for mooches. The Christian and mooch is not a good, not a, it doesn't fit. Christianity is not a place for mooches. If you don't work, don't eat. It sounds harsh, but it's not. It sounds harsh, but it's not. And the truth is, in telling people that they have to work in order to eat, you are giving them dignity. You are restoring a person's dignity when you give them work to do and then they earn their keep. You're giving somebody dignity. They are capable. If they are capable, let them rise to the call. And if they refuse to rise to the call, admonish them to rise to the call. Hey, I got this thing over here I need you to do before I'm going to give you any of that. Let them work for it. Let them contribute. Even if, the contribute. even if the contribution is unnecessary and not needed, let them contribute. Give them dignity. 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 14 says that phrase, admonish the disorderly, admonish the idle. <laughs> admonish them. Say to them, you really need to work. And then give them space here in this passage. Give them space to do it. And be patient. Be patient with them. In 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 14, be patient. To love well is to help others. And if somebody is a mooch, it's not helpful to let them stay a mooch. We need to admonish one another. Reason number three, that you would not be a busybody. Look at verse 11. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. I love that phrase. Right? Not busy at work, but busy bodies. He is saying you should be working with your hands. One of the quickest ways to answer gossip and troubles, by the way, is to give people work to do. They stop when people are tired because they've been working. They don't have room for gossip. They don't have room for this stuff. He said, she said, they don't have room for that. If you admonish them and you keep them from being busy bodies, then... You will see gossip killed. Remember in 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 11, mind your own affairs. Mind your own business. Mind your own business. That doesn't mean that we don't intertwine our lives and talk to each other about what's going on. But it does mean that we are not constantly looking over somebody else's shoulder to see what they're doing. Instead, we walk alongside each other as these commands in verse 12 tell us to command and exhort here that we walk alongside one another. These things come from the side of each other. 
So no mooching. So first reason, Paul's example. Second reason, no mooching. Third reason, do not be busybodies. So church, work to kill gossip quickly. Work to kill busybodying quickly. Meddlers and things like that. Work to kill that quickly. The easiest way to do it is when somebody comes to you to ask you about somebody else, call that other person on the phone with that person in right in front of you. That will end a conversation quick. Hey, have you heard about... Hold on. Well, let's think of the name. Nobody is in the room. I'm going to use your name, Dad. Bill. Have you heard about Bill? Have you talked to Bill? No? All right. Pull out your phone. Call Bill on the phone. Here. That'll end that conversation quickly. I'm just really worried about... I'm really worried about, about him. I'm really worried about him. Uh, have you talked to him? No. Pull out your phone. Busybodies will stop. Kill gossip quickly. Refuse to think disparaging thoughts about other people. Think what is good. Whatever is good, whatever is right, whatever is holy, think upon such things. Think what is good about other people. When, the, when your mind has drifted towards negatives of people, I want you intentionally, and I try to do this, to intentionally think about good things about that person. What do I know about that person that's good? And if you don't know anything about that person that's good, you probably need to go get to know them. Probably need to go get to know them. So think what is good about people. Work hard. A lack of work is often the the culprit in gossip and busybodies. You give them something to do and they will stop gossiping. And then here in verse 12, the final conclusion The concluding statement, now such a person, such persons we command and encourage. Those two words are important for us to grasp. The word command is to bring a message alongside, to bring a message alongside, para angelio, bring a a message alongside the person. And the word exhort is para kaloimen, right? Meaning to call out from alongside. So, You call from alongside, you bring a message alongside. Note that it's not in front of them that you're bringing the message. It's not above them. It's not hupo. It's not above them. It's not apo. It's not in front of them. And it's not, it's not behind them. It's not hyper either. It's, it's para. So it's next to, we bring these things alongside one another. In other words, it's that, that, that saying we have here. You don't address a sin unless you're willing to get down in the dirt and help the person out of it. We go, if we see something in somebody here, we want to go alongside them. We want to work with them. We want to intertwine our lives with them and walk next to them. So command and exhort, we do that from the side of somebody with our arm around them, offering them a crutch, offering them help. And going, I'll walk at your pace so that we can go this direction. That's how we handle these things. This is answered from the side of our brothers. Idleness and laziness is answered from the side of our brothers. If you want to call somebody out of idleness, you walk with them. You walk with them. You get next to them and you go, what's in your life that I can be a part of, that I can walk with? So you walk alongside as Jesus has done for you. You walk alongside as Jesus does for you. When he becomes man and walks alongside you on this earth that you would know him. 
So do your work and eat your own bread. Do your work and eat your own bread. That's the last part of that verse. It's, it, we translate it in the ESV. Do their work quietly and earn their own living. It literally means eat your own bread. Do your work. Eat your own bread. Eat your own bread. Because Jesus has come and walked alongside you and has done this for you. So we walk alongside one another. And we do this for one another, laying down our lives, but calling each other to something greater. Calling ourselves, calling the body to something greater. Do not walk in laziness. Do not walk in idleness, but rather strive to live an orderly life.